Hans was just reminding me during the break of the story of a man who, you know, was recently anointed. They put him on a throne, and he's the king of this particular denomination. Like, that's his title, rather than even like patriarch or some other title they usually take. But it was just kind of the... It's just kind of shocking when it comes so directly like that, and and there, there's a dynamic in the human heart that I that I want to, I want to be forceful with, but I I understand I want to have compassion on it, but I want to I, I want us to come to terms with it, you know. And you have kids, and you're in that situation with your kids, and you're like, I love you, but you have to come to terms with what's going on here, but I love you but come to terms, you know. So it's it's kind of part of that, that's the dynamic of a room full of Gentiles here, is that is that uh, God really is, uh, orders history by ethnicity. He, he's an ethnicist, so to say. And, uh, and all ethnicities uh, have a... a uh, Messianic, a messianic complex of sorts. All ethnicities are superior, right? I'm Irish. How the Irish saved civilization, right? Heard of that book? All ethnicities are like this, where they they're they're the they're the uniquely anointed ethnicity by the gods, whatever gods they have, or whatever history, or uh, whatever their their theology is, and uh, the Western nations are. The most evolved of nature, their God, and this kind, these kinds of ideas. But all ethnicities are are these ways where we self-identify and and we choose ourselves. And this is part of just saying, well, <clears throat> it's a humility aspect of coming to terms with it and submitting yourself to it. Right? God has ordered things these the, these ways. He's consigned things in this way and that. You know, and and uh, and there's an aspect of just going, hmm, I, I'm I'm a Gentile, and I'm part of that bit in Isaiah 60, with the kings bringing their glory into Jerusalem. It's awesome. I mean, you know, he's not only the king, the God of the Jews. He's also the God of the Gentiles, and he loves all the Gentile nations. But we can't confuse our place in the situation. I mean, that's the great irony of Romans 11 that Paul is trying to head off is the Gentiles becoming arrogant, that they have received the knowledge unto eternal life, whereas the Jews have been hardened and haven't received it. and They would not submit to the ordained arrangement of atonement with the sacrifice of the Messiah and seek uh, salvation by their own righteousness thereby. And so we it's part of that just kind of coming to terms with, no, he's going to be a Jewish Messiah. He's going to sit in a throne in Israel, in Jerusalem, on David's throne, right? Not Nebuchadnezzar's throne, not Caesar's throne, not Charlemagne's throne, not King James's throne, not... Abraham Wa- or uh, Washington? No, George Washington. Yeah, uh, well, there's not Washington's throne. Like it's not. We we don't get to choose the throne. This is just the way it is. He's going to sit on David's throne in a restored kingdom to Israel that's based on ethnicity, 
And ethnicity is a strange dynamic that Gentiles became Jews ethnically through proselytism, and they still can become that way and, and have, and ethnicity becomes kind of a strange animal to grapple with, like what is ethnically a Jew, and that's why you got Jews from Africa, Jews from Russia, Jews from all over that over the ages have bound themselves in ethnicity according to circumcision and sacrifice and obedience to the law. And these things, and 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 these are the things that defined being Jewish. And so we'll get we'll get into that a little bit more. But the Lord still Adam named that thing that, and that what it is. You you, you understand? Like it, it is. It, we got we have to come to terms with ethnicity as according to this is how it's defined, and God takes it seriously. And the age to come will actually be administrated on those grounds. As much as it makes, you know, an awesome Gentile's flesh crawl, that's just how it is, you know. And, and uh, so we'll get into my friend, you know. Oh, you guys know, do you guys know Jimmy? Sure. Yeah, anyway, so. Jimmy will talk about, you know, he's, he's real locked into doing evangelism in Israel, and he'll talk about you know, engaging Orthodox Jews and stuff and just being like, I, I believe in the Jewish Messiah. I believe the nations will bring their glory up to Jerusalem. He'll just lay out the scripture. I, I'm, I'm Taiwanese. I, I, I understand my part and my role. But I'm going to inherit eternal life. And if, unless you repent and believe that God sent the Messiah the first time to bear sin, and unless you put your faith in him, you won't inherit eternal life. You won't be part, you know, and, and then there's like the, whoa, man. You know, at, at first it's like, whoa, here's a Gentile who has some sort of understanding. And then it's like, whoa, no, I don't, we're not friends, you know. There's a lot of background and issues, you know, with Christianity and Judaism. So, you know, anyway, um, all right, so the Messianic Temple. Now, this actually... Uh, it's kind of one of those things where it becomes like the heart of the controversy of whether Jesus realized the kingdom at the first coming or not, because the very heart comes down to the house of God. And uh, is there going to be a house of God in the age to come, or is there not? And did Jesus realize it in himself or not? And uh, so it's not just the age to come and eternal life and the new heavens and new earth aren't going to be administrative administrated just from a throne in on Mount Zion within Mount Zion's a mountain within Jerusalem on Mount Zion within Jerusalem and Israel to the ends of the earth but particularly within a house or a temple and so this is this is really the heart of the Davidic covenant when your days are over you rest with your fathers I'll raise up your offspring to succeed you He's the one who will build a house for my name, because this is the context of the Davidic covenant. Because David wanted to build a house for the Lord, a temple for the Lord. And uh, and the Lord comes to him and says, you, you won't, but I'll raise up a seed after you who will. And then Solomon, it didn't quite work out, so it's, that thing gets perpetuated through the prophetic oracles that uh, Psalm 132 and Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 60, in which the, the, the Messiah will sit on Mount Zion and the temp, mountain of the Lord's temple will be raised up. 
So, Isaiah 2, in the last day, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised up above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Okay, do you understand? You see the the flow of the whole thing? He will teach us his way so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He'll judge between the nations and settle disputes for many peoples. And so, you know, if you go on in Isaiah 2, if you go on in that chapter, you just get it laid out, right? Verse 12, verse 11, the eyes of the arrogant man will be humbled and the pride of men brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for, for all that's exalted and they will be humbled. The arrogance of man will be brought low, verse 17. The pride of man humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted on that day, and the idols will totally disappear. Men will flee to caves in the rocks and holes in the ground from the dread of the Lord, the splendor of his majesty, when he rises to shake the earth. Right? That's the, you get the revelation into Revelation 6, the the referencing of that. They will flee to caverns in the rocks and to the overhanging crags from the dread of the Lord, the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. So in context to the, the day of the Lord that's coming, this is how it will be after the day of the Lord. And this is how the kingdom will be administrated from Mount Zion, from within the mountain of the Lord's temple. And Mount Zion will be raised up. The Messiah will establish the house of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, and he'll sit on a throne the Davidic throne within that temple, and all the nations will come up to Jerusalem. And the law will go forth, and he will judge between the nations, and he'll administrate the age to come. See what I'm saying? Isaiah, or Ezekiel 43, As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple, and he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne, the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. So the the a number of references you get, the temple as the footstool of God. Come let us go up to the footstool and worship and and so the 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 temple is understood as God sits in his heavenly temple on his throne, and his footstool is the temple in Jerusalem. And it's not just like this, but it's also like this, looking forward to the Messiah will come and take up that footstool, and the Messiah will rule on the footstool of the divine throne in the heavens. And the heavens will open, the angels will come and ascend and descend, and that will be the place of his dwelling forever, and then the glory will be administrated from that. So that's how they understood you know, they dedicated the temple and all of a sudden the glory of God came into the temple and they all fall down and worship and say his covenant faithfulness endures forever. You know, he, that's why the miracle happened, to make us believe that, yes, you know, he's, he's gonna, he's going to anoint this temple in glory when the, sea, when the Messiah comes and he initiates the day of the Lord. And so, <clears throat> so anyway, that's that's the... Straightforward reading of Ezekiel 40, the end of Ezekiel there. 
Um, now, this is one of those just fantastic Zechariah. Um, so at the end of chapter 3, you get the whole thing with, with Joshua because what we're about to read is from chapter 6 and you get a real clear prophecy within you know the the narrative of what happens here with Zerubbabel after they come back from from exile but to 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 kind of understand what's happening with with uh Joshua the high priest you go to the uh to chapter 3 where you have Satan standing uh, next to Joshua, accusing him, you have the rebuking of him. He says to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin. Verse 4, I'll put rich garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed them while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in all in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge over my courts. And I'll give you a place among these standing here. Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There's seven eyes on the stone. <clears throat> and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I'll remove the sin of this land in a single day. So you get a reference to the day of the Lord and a the interaction that's going on in the temple with Joshua the high priest and a direct, these men are symbolic of things to come, right? David is symbolic of the, of the offspring who is to come, who will sit on his throne. So likewise, the high priest is, is symbolic of things to come, of who will administrate the house of God in, in, in the age to come. So then you pick it up in, in Zechariah 6. He says, verse 11, Take the silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehoshadak. Tell him this is what the, this is, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from this place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and sit and rule on his throne, and he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. So you get a, a prophetic interaction in which there's a crown placed on the high priest and a prophecy that, look, this is the branch that's going to sprout from the stump of Jesse, and this is the one who will build the house of the Lord, just like the Davidic covenant said, there's coming an offspring, and he will build the house of the Lord, and I will build up his throne for all generations. And, and so you get the same kind of dynamic where he says, look, the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to build the house of the Lord, and he's going to sit on a throne in the temple, and there's going to be harmony between his priesthood and kingship. But the point of that is, is that it's a real clear, the temple and the priesthood are symbolic of the things to come. The things to come are not the church things to come or in the age to come, and uh, the Messianic temple. Uh, page 7, Malachi 2, you have wearied the Lord by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. 
the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? Right? So you get a real clear, like, this is the, this is, we're waiting for the God of justice and the day of his coming, and and when he comes, he will come suddenly into his temple, and then he will refine the Levites, and he'll purge the sorcerers and murderers from the land, you know, as it goes on in Malachi 3 there. So, Throughout the New Testament, we're not going to work through all the passages, but throughout the New Testament, there's never any undermining of the place and role of the temple in Jewish life or in reference to the age to come. It's always assumed that this thing is is going to be that which the Messiah comes and takes up his glory in. And the Father anoints with heavenly glory, glory, right? There's never any, even in the... You know, all the passages like John 2, you know, he comes in, he drives him out with a whip, and he says, what are you making my father's house? A den of robbers, right? And they say, prove to us you have this authority to cleanse this temple, that God has made you the shepherd over this house instead of us. And he says, tear down this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. And they say, it's taking 46 years to build this thing. You're going to tear it down and build it in three days? And he says, he just walks away. And his disciples say, they remembered after he was raised, after three days, that the temple he referred to as his own body. Now, reason with me. His body is not replacing that temple. He's saying, I have authority over this temple because you tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. That proves I have authority to cleanse this temple, my father's house. Do you understand? It's just straightforward, right? There's never any, like, undermining of it. There's never any, like, replacing of it that it's non-important, that it's, that it's somehow abrogated because now there's a new age going on. There's, there's the theology of justification by faith. All of the epistles are written while the sacrifices are still happening in the temple. It's just Hebrews 9. Those things cleanse outwardly for sin in this age. The divine atonement, the messianic sacrifice, cleanses inwardly for salvation on the day of the Lord. The two go along hand in hand. Paul offers sacrifices in Acts 21. Not somehow kind of with pretense and with a show of, oh, I honor this thing, but not really. It's, it's just part of the old thing. and That thing's whatever. No, no, none of that. Like, it's it's carried forward, and this is why, you know, like in Luke 24, <clears throat> the angels go up in Acts 1, and what do they say? when? I mean, when Jesus goes up and the angels appear, what did the angels say? Sitting there. Say, so he'll come back the same way that he went up, right? And so what do they do? Back to the temple. And worship night and day, right? Because there's the expectation that he's going to come back, and where's the Messiah going to come back to? To the temple, because this is the locus. It's the center of the age to come and the initiation of the day of the Lord. The Messiah is going to sit on a throne in the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem over Israel and administrate the glory of God and the resurrection, the judgment of the nations on the day of the Lord into the age to come. You see what I'm saying? So that, all right, Okay, so here's where the contention comes in. You take any major scholar, 
all right? Liberal, moderate, conservative, evangelical, not. Anyone who's somewhat familiar with the Jewish writings in the Old Testament scriptures, this is, the, I, the, they'll all agree up to this point that this was the vision of first century Judaism for the kingdom of God. This is the Jewish expectation for the kingdom of God. This is how things are ordered. And the central, the heart of the whole thing, is the temple. Now, the contention comes in when you say, well, that was realized. Those expectations for the kingdom were realized at the first coming. Which part Which part was realized? Right? What's already? Is it is it the throne? Is, it, is the temple already? Is the is the is Mount Zion already? Is Jerusalem already? Is the Davidic dynasty already? Right? Is the is the land already? Are the nations in peace already? Like what part already is going on? Oh well, well it's not. Well you know that was that was just kind of Jewish nationalism and pride. And, well what's already is the you know the the soul spiritual of the soul part. That's that's already. And the not yet, well the not yet is well it's the it's the rest of it. It's the new heavens and new earth, the resurrection of the body, you know, the stuff that's universal to all Gentiles. That's not yet. Right? Cuz this is this is where the contention comes in. The already is only the Jewish stuff. You 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 understand? Why is the already only the Jewish stuff? Why is, why is the already replace only the stuff that has to do with ethnicity? Why? Because of Gentile arrogance. That's all, I mean, that's the bottom line is that we, because this is, this is a little bit too big of a pill to swallow. See, big and round. You ever swallow a big round pill? Kind of makes you gag on the way down. <laughs> that's what's going on here. You get, you get a big pill for a Gentile to swallow. Right? But there's two pills to swallow. There's the second coming pill, right, which makes us gag. But then there's the first coming pill, which we'll get to, we'll get to tomorrow. The first coming pill is a pretty big one to swallow too. That makes, that makes Jews gag. You understand? Like, you show this diagram to a conservative Jew, a practicing Jew, they'd be like, ooh, I like it. <laughs> right? Because it, 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 it gives picture to what the, the, the nature of their calling and their identity and what their, what, what this age is about in relation to the age to come. But you show this picture to a Gentile and they're like, I, I just, I don't feel the witness of the Spirit on that, brother. You know? And it's like, I, I, I know you don't, man. Just take some time in the scriptures and ask the Holy Spirit and, and uh, and you'll have a dream. You know, that's how it worked out for me. I was real zealous, and then all of a sudden I had a dream one night, and in my dream I'm talking to this guy, and I'm just, like, covered in, like, conviction, and I just say to him, you're right. There are nations in the age to come. And I quoted Revelation 21 to him, and I woke up, and I was just like, oh, my gosh. Years of bad teaching. Why? Lord, have mercy on me. And so it's, it's just the dynamic of coming to term with the scriptures 
and recognizing yourself in the story and appreciating it as a younger son. Awesome. And there's no difference in, in glory of the resurrection or in salvation or the basis of faith. They don't get in any easier than I do or you do. Right? We all get in on the same terms and we all receive glory according to our righteous deeds. Right? But there's difference in how the Lord will orchestrate that thing out and he's designed a, 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 an arrangement to it. So, this sets up for a theology of stewardship. And this is, uh, on that basis, this will give us context for how evangelism and the issues between Jew and Gentile uh, unfold in the early church. And so, a theology of stewardship has a general idea, right? Human beings will be held accountable for how they've stewarded in this age. It's, that's the nature of the day of the Lord. The, the, that's the, that's the disaster of kingdom now or inaugurational theology that has that, that whole starts out with Adam lost his authority in the garden. Jesus regained it back and by faith we regain it. And it's like, no, there's never any authority lost because you lose the authority. You lose the responsibility for judgment, right? Man has always retained authority over the earth. He just perverted it, right? And he continues to pervert it. And we continue to pervert it. Every time we check out, every time we disengage, every time we act like we're playing with our kids, but we're really not, every time we... You see, like, so I got this... Now I'm not going to say it. It's gonna, I'm not going to say it. Every time we don't... Respond in righteousness and, 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 and do as we know we ought. We forsake our responsibility in the light that's been given to us and we'll be held accountable to it, right? And so this is, there's a broad theology of stewardship in this age in which man is given stewardship over his various spheres of life and he'll be held to account whether Jew or Gentile. And that's the point of, of giving account. But then you have a specific Jewish stewardship. So if you flip over to page 8, and you have in light of how the covenants have framed out the age to come, how the covenants have cast the form upon the age to come. You understand? That then let us steward in such a way, like Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2, come, let's go up to the mountain. He'll teach us his ways. The law will go out from Zion. He'll judge between the nations. They'll dispute. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And so then it goes on to how they've not walked in the light of the Lord. They've walked in idolatry and these things. And so the point of the covenants and the law and, and the land, why not just Tarian dispersion forever, right? Why bring the Jews into the land of their forefathers that's promised to Abraham as a living man in the resurrection? Why, why after the exile, why bring them back? Why 2,000 years later bring them back? Like what, what's, the, what's the purpose for being in the land? What's the purpose for 
setting up a throne in Jerusalem and governing from Jerusalem? What's the purpose of building a temple? Like, why are they there? What's the meaning of them in of themselves? Because what ends up happening is that if you have an inaugurationalist view, a realized eschatology in the first coming, and you replace those Jewish things with generic universal Gentile things, then those things of the Old Testament don't mean anything in and of themselves beyond being types and signs of that which is fulfilled in the New Testament, in the, I mean in the, in the church, versus they are types and signs of that which is fulfilled in the age to come. In and of itself, the Davidic throne is stewarded and then taken up in that throne in the age to come. The temple is stewarded and then it's taken up in the age to come, in and of itself. So the thing in and of itself has meaning without just being something that points to something else that's other than itself. You, you, you understand what I'm saying? Because other, otherwise, just, you know, Jews just come here and there and go to and fro. Like, why ever come back from Babylon? What does it mean? Other than it's a stewarding of the oracle. And the Abrahamic covenant itself is an oracle. And the Davidic covenant in itself is an oracle. And then all of the prophetic oracles that come out of that are based on, which we've, we, we saw how the Psalms and, and, and Isaiah and the different prophets, they quote the, the, the covenants from Abraham and David and such. And so the, the, the covenants and the oracles give a picture to which is to be stewarded in this age. So this is, uh, this is made clear in, in a number of ways, that which is, uh, uh, is fairly commonly assumed. So in Leviticus 25, when you're given the, they're giving the laws about the land and the jubilee year and the forgiving of debt and giving the lands back to one another, you get this, the justification for why the jubilee system is set up with the lands. He says, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you are but aliens and my tenants. Throughout the country that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. And then as, as David is, is consecrating the work of the temple, you know, right before he passes away, he does the prayer before the assembly, says, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this, for all things come from you, and from your hand we have given you, for we are sojourners before you, and tenants, as all our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow, and there is no hope. So there's, there's an interpretation of what it meant for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to live in the land and possess part of it. And then after that, the forefathers of David possessing it, there's an interpretation that we are tenants of this thing. And what we're doing and building here is stewarding that which is to come, that it will be eternal. So then Haggai 2, you get it especially in the prophets after the exile, right? Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. And here you get a real strong, direct, and straightforward theology of stewardship. And this is the whole idea of, of, of Haggai, right? Is that the, they come back into the land, they're busy doing their own thing. The Lord says, why are you building all of your houses, but you won't, you won't build my house? So they all go down and they build the house of the Lord, the temple, and then there's wailing, right? Why is there wailing? 
and Haggai. on the same page? Why is there wailing? Some are rejoicing and singing. Others are wailing. Why are they wailing? Some saw the first temple and the glory of the first temple, and then they see this one and it's lame, right? But what is God's response to it? God's response to it is, thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver and the, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Right? So in context to the wailing and of this thing, we just didn't have very much money and we didn't have very much wealth to build this grand thing. The Lord's like, listen, I'll shake the heavens and the earth and the wealth of the nations will come to Jerusalem and the desire of the nations will build the house of the Lord. And the glory of that house, when he fills this house with glory, the glory of that house in the age to come will be greater than the glory of the former house. Right? So this is their theology of stewarding the land and and the promises and the oracles and the temple and the throne is they're stewarding it in righteousness to produce fruit in keeping with the age to come. And then uh, I don't have in here, but Malachi is Malachi is one long sustained. I don't know if I have enough time. Bit here. Malachi, the book of Malachi is probably one of the clearest and most sustained. The day of the Lord is at hand. What then should we do? Right? Because everybody asks, like, what do you do with the day of the Lord teaching, brother? And it's like, well, you do what what the prophets say, and John the Baptist says, and Jesus says, and the early church says, and it's it's always about repentance and fear and loving your neighbor and laying down your life and caring and not oppressing people right this is so malachi is one of those but it's specifically oriented around the temple okay so just before i dive in to know how much like i need to detail it who's familiar with malachi like could think in their mind four chapters what's being addressed anybody okay so go home Read through Malachi. I'll give you an overview because it's like, it's just one of those like, man. So chapter one is the Lord saying, you bring to me all these defective offerings, these pathetic, you're, you're, you're like the shit, like, like the, the, like the, within your livestock, the animals that you don't care about, that you can't sell and make money on, that you can't get stuff. You bring these to me and offer these to me, right? At the temple. But I'm a great king. Would you offer those to your king? Yet you offer me like the lame sacrifices? I'm a great king. My name's going to be honored among all the nations. Yet you bring me these terrible offerings. And then he goes, you know, he goes into chapter 2, admonishing the priests. Like you're not teaching the people. You've, You've broken the covenant. This is why you're not offering me these sacrifices. You've broken the covenant. And it's all in reference to the day of the Lord. There's this... There's this chronic unbelief that the day of the Lord, the day of justice and the delineation between the righteous and the wicked. 
and the, the day burning like an oven, which is what the book concludes with, there's this unbelief concerning it. So this is why they're not stewarding the temple. It's why they're not bringing the sacrifices. It's why they're breaking the covenant. They're not teaching the instruction. They're unfaithful to the Lord. And this is why they're unfaithful to one another. And they're breaking their their covenants, even in marriage. But the Lord says, I hate the divorce. I hate your breaking of the covenant. I hate the sacrifices being offered before me in my house. And then he gets right into it, the end of chapter 2. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have you wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord. And he is pleased with them. Where is the God of justice? See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. But who can endure the day of his coming? Because he'll refine the Levites and the priests. He'll refine the wicked from the land. And then it goes into, I'm the Lord, I don't change. But you ask, how are we, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. You ask, how do we rob God? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, the whole nation, because you're robbing, robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And see if I test me and you'll, you'll see a floodgate from heaven. If you'll, if you'll believe in the justice in the day of the Lord, and if you'll steward this thing with earnestness and faithfulness, then I will provide for you. If you'll seek first the kingdom and righteousness, these things will be given to you. But you sit here and you complain, so you bring the lame offerings. You don't, you, you're, you're unfaithful to the, to the covenant. You're unfaithful with one another. And all the brokenness is happening because of the lack of belief. So then he goes into, you've said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said? You've said, it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements, going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. And so then those who are righteous talk with one another. The Lord writes a scroll and says, when I make up my treasured possession, when, 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 when I come into the temple, these will make it, these I will remember. And he makes a scroll of remembrance. And you will again, verse 18, the end of chapter 3, see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace, and all the arrogant and evildoer will be stubble on that day. It's coming to set them on fire. Not a root nor branch will be left of them, but you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness, will rise with healing in its wings, will go out and leap like calves released from the stall on the wicked, etc. See, I will send, uh, remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send to you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the children to their fathers, else I'll come and strike the land with a curse. So the whole book is a sustained prophetic critique that you don't actually believe that the day of the Lord is coming. And you don't actually steward the law and the temple rightly and lead the people in earnestness and devotion in light of the day of the Lord. And so this is why you complain against me. This is why you don't bring the, the tithes into the storehouse to take care of the, the, the Levites. And the Levites are discouraged and they're, you know, it's all just a big mess like this. So then you get this same uh, theology as you come into the New Testament, like we talked about with John 2, but then specifically 
in the Gospels where Jesus comes into the temple, right? He's coming in on a donkey. Everybody's saying, blessed be, you know, the king, the coming kingdom of Father David. And so everybody's expecting he's going to go into the temple. The heavens are going to open. The angels are going to come and gather the nations. The whole bit's going to happen, right? And so he goes into the temple and then he cleanses it. And then you have a confrontation. Who gave you this authority over this temple? Right? And he says, well, let me ask you a question. John's baptism? From God or from men? Right? Because what did John say? Repent for the day of the Lord's at hand. Yet you didn't repent. Everybody else came out confessing their sins with fear and trembling, but you didn't. And now the, the, the signs of your inward hardness and arrogance, you have, a, you have, you have the, the outworkings and, and greed and selfish ambition working out in the temple. You have a little market going on here, right? And so he says, his baptism, who was it from? Was it from God? Then why didn't you go out and repent and be saved? Because you believe it was from man. It wasn't from God. So you say, oh, he's just a crazy guy out in the desert. He's, he's not anointed by God. And so they say, you know, they say, well, we fear the people. And we, if we say it's from man, the people will be angry with us. So we say, we don't know. And he says, no, I won't tell you. But then, what's he do? He doesn't leave him hanging. He tells him a parable. It's, it's one of the only parables that doesn't shift around in the Gospels. It's always right after the cleansing of the parable, the temple, he tells this parable, right? And what's the parable? There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants. He went to another country. When the season for fruit draw near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit and the servants one he killed another he killed finally i'll send my own son maybe they'll respect him but they say hey let's take the inheritance they killed the son so then it picks up when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes what will he do to those tenants they said to him he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons and he says so this is what they just said to me, quoting Psalm 118, coming into the city, right? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What's the next verse? The, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, right? And so, hold on, let's just read it. <laughs> Put those wretches to a wretched end. They'll rent out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them the share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord's done it. It's marvelous in his eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. So they looked for a way to arrest him and kill him. Right? And so there's an indictment on how they're stewarding the temple in light of the day of the Lord. There's never a, you know, disqualifying or abrogating or replacing or anything. There's just a, there's just a consistent prophetic critique. You're not stewarding my father's house in righteousness. So God's going to come, he's going to remove you, and he's going to put people in who will produce fruit and righteousness, who fear God, right? <clears throat> so, uh, so then, uh, <clears throat> Romans 3, 
to what advantage has the, has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So this basic idea of the covenants and the land, these things are, are, are issues of stewarding oracles, in a sense, okay? And so why, why, what's the purpose of the Jews being in the land? Because the way you relate to Israel in the scriptures is the exact same way you relate to Israel today. You understand? The exact same way. You don't relate any different to the Jews then as you do now. And so this is where, this is where the rub really comes like, like, it's like, what, what do you do with those guys over there that are obviously wicked, are obviously apostate? They were apostate in Jesus' day. They were apostate before the exile. David was apostate. What? I, they, I mean, you don't like, I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I don't want to say he's apostate. He, he, he was, he was repentant. Apostate means you're not repentant. I'm just saying like, they were all sinful. And a lot of them were like, straight up non-repentant at all, and yet they were still entrusted with it until God chose to take them out of the land. He chose to put them back in. He chose to take them out by his own sovereignty and divine choice. He chose to give them stewardship of it and take it away from them. But the point is, is why, what is their purpose in the land today? And if you look over what has happened to the message of the gospel since the Jews came into the land in 1948, well, before that, yay, you know, the Darfur declarations, etc., the beginning of the century. And, but you have a, just so happens, oh, we discovered as many documents out in the desert in 1949, right, Dead Sea Scrolls, as we had in total before that, right? You have... All of a sudden, this massive influx of Jewish research and background and history, and all of a sudden, you have the Hebrew University rising up, and all these Jewish scholars, and Geza Vermez, and David Flusser, and all these guys, and they're just writing like massive, like they're doing all the research on this, and they're writing articles trying to educate the Christian scholars across the world. Let me try to explain to you what was going on in Jesus' day. Of course, they're unbelievers. They don't believe anything about Jesus' atonement. They might concede that he was a good guy and a prophet, but he definitely led Israel astray. But the point is, is they're giving all the background to Christian studies, you know, for the last 50 years, and it's like pulling teeth. The Christian studies and Christian scholars going, um, maybe he was, maybe he was a Jew. I don't, not, but he realized all that Jewish stuff at the first coming. But maybe that other stuff, well, maybe in you know, our initiament, and you know, it all goes like this. But it's like the fact that they're in the land is an oracle in itself that, like, anchors and draws people in and forces them to come to terms with the reality of it. If they'd just been dispersed and. As they, as every other culture has been dispersed when they lose their land and, you know, and they lose their language and it's just, they, they're gone. What, you know, where are the, where are the Persians? Where are the, where are the Chaldeans? Where are the Midians? Where are all those guys? Where are the Greeks? I mean, they have Greece, but the language definitely is not what it used to be, you know? <laughs> it's like, but the fact that no, they've come back and God has preserved them 
and brought them in miraculously, according to every account. It's an oracle in itself, and it's drawing the church back to its center of gravity. And the point is not to change the eschatology or change the Jewish hope. The point is to drive home to the Jews. It's not to say, well, you're stewarding a misled nationalistic hope over there. All right? It's to say, you're stewarding that nationalistic hope in unrighteousness. You understand? Like, the way you're treating the Palestinians is not loving your enemies. And you need to repent, and you need to walk in righteousness, and you need to, because this is not how you inherit eternal life, right? You you you, you don't disqualify them from their calling and their inheritance, and you don't feed the unrighteousness and say, well, they have their, you know, this was the, the ultimate folly of the dispensational movement that said, well, the Jews have their plan of salvation on the earth, and we Gentiles have our heavenly plan of salvation in heaven, right? And so we need to work to save souls for heaven and also fund Jews to kill Arabs, right? No, not the gospel, not the gospel. This is not how you support Israel. You support Israel by praying for them that they would turn from their unrighteousness and be healed and accept the truth and repent and flee the wrath of God to come and put their hope in their Messiah. You understand what I'm saying? But not to disqualify their calling and their hope as as they understand it because that's never, as you work through the book of Acts and the New Testament, there's there's never any idea of disqualifying. There's never any, we should shut down the temple and just, you know, head it out to the nations. That's never, it's always centered there. And in fact, there's clear declarations that even though they're enemies of the gospel before God, they're loved on account of the patriarchs. And their gifts and their callings are irrevocable. You can't change that thing. You can't overturn it. So... Out of things, my main, my mind's just gone blank, and it's about nine. So, um, so I know, I know, probably, you know, uh, a lot of this has just kind of been like a lot all at once, and um, this isn't really a context to administrate the grace of God, or, or. Uh, or impartation or anything, so I think we'll just close. And uh, and uh, again, I'm a I'm a I'm a peanut, you know, Irish Gentile, and and so don't take my words for anything authoritative unless they line up and and correspond with the scriptures. And uh, so, but the reason I wanted to work through this is because it will it will give us context as we work through other issues in the days to come, and there's complexity to it. Okay, I agree. We'll, we'll get into this more and more. The complexity will get more and more complexity. But again, this is this is why we lay out a simple timeline, a linear view of history that has a basic two-age theory divided by the day of the Lord, because then we can can deal with the issues of the covenants and what their 
how the covenants relate to the timeline and the two ages. We can deal with the oracles and how they relate. We can deal with the first coming, what it does and what it doesn't do. We didn't do a whole lot of what it does. We'll, we'll work through more of the details of the first coming tomorrow and the cross and the interpretation of that. But we want to lay out you know, what didn't change at the first coming and the kind of basic framework of the age to come and how eternal life is administrated. None of that changed. Okay, salvation didn't change. It's just the issue of how do we find righteousness before God and how are we saved from the wrath to come? These are the things that, that, that are the issues in the New Testament, justification by faith and such. All right, why don't I pray for us? Well, Lord, thank you for your word. I just pray tonight if there were things spoken uh, in my own zeal that uh, that were outside the bounds of Scripture and uh, didn't accord with the truth, God, we just ask you to to uh, bring clarity to those things, to bring simplicity to them. God, we ask you for truth. We want to see as clearly as we can. We, we have that spirit like the prophets. We long to look into the oracles, God to understand the things that you have spoken, to understand things that you have ordained, God, to understand the hope of our calling. So we just ask you tonight that you would further unfold that to us to give us a clear vision of our calling and the inheritance of the saints, God, and that you would, um, God, I just ask you for any... uh, any strongholds of the mind concerning the issues of ethnicity, the issues of the Jew and the Gentile, God, your your ordained calling on Israel, God. I ask you for strongholds that you would, in mercy and love, that you would come and you would dismantle those, God, that you would establish yourself as the God of Israel, not only of Israel, but of the whole earth and the Gentiles too, God, that you would establish yourself in our minds and in our hearts, that we would be able to submit to how you have ordained things. And with the same heart, submit to the righteousness that you've provided. Submit to you in all ways concerning life and salvation, God. We just submit ourselves to you, God. We present ourselves before you and we submit ourselves to you. And we ask you to lead us in truth, Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus.